Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Hey, there we go. We got one catching on over here. That's good. Uh, well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Find Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback around you. And it will be on page 787 of the hardback Bible. We want you to look into God's Word along with me and not just take every word, which I say uh, at face value, but really uh, be a good Berean and dig into it. So we want you to use that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that one home with you as a gift from us, uh, but please read it. And so this morning we're going to be digging into Mark chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at just six verses this morning here in Mark chapter 3. Now, the title of today's message is The Intent of the Law. Now, how many of you enjoy uh, crime TV kind of shows? Like Law and Order, CSI. Go ahead, don't be bashful. I'm not going to judge you, okay? It's okay. Safe place. We only have a handful of people? I think you're lying. Okay, we have some people that don't really want to admit it. Okay, I, I'm seeing, I see that hand, okay? So, the intent of the law, that doesn't sound very exciting, and I was a bit cautious about this morning how to really kind of preach this and, and talk through this, but I, I, I think this is a good way to go here in thinking about these six verses, and so how I want to start is to ask you a question to let you ponder on for just a moment, and then we're going to jump in. The question is basically this, is it more important, which one is more important here, Okay. Is it more important for us to follow the law or for us to follow the intent of the law? I think this question is important for us to see what's happening here in the text that we have in front of us. Is following the law more important than just the aim of what the law is there to help us do? Well, last week we saw that Jesus was dealing with an issue of the law, the Sabbath day. And I think even today we're going to be forced into examining this idea of the intent of the law versus the law itself. And we saw last week from chapter 2 that Jesus was dealing with this question of the Sabbath with the Pharisees. And he made it abundantly clear that the Sabbath was made for man's good. The Sabbath, it was made with an intention behind it. That it was, yes, one of, the, one of the commandments, the fourth commandment, but there's something behind that command other than just being a law that God gave. And so he's making the point that the Sabbath, it is more than just a law that should be followed. And the Pharisees, they, they thought it was more just a law that should be followed. And they were experts at following that law, of doing what the law says. But they had lost sight of what was behind that law, the intention of the law. And we saw this last week, and we'll see that even, I think, more defined here this morning. So today, we see that Jesus is the one who's going to be asking the questions. If you remember from chapter 2, Jesus was being asked uh, four different questions by the religious people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the questions were questions like this, about his authority, or his associations, his leadership skills, his practice of righteousness, his interpretation of the law. These were all questions directed to Jesus or directed about his disciples, which indirectly came back to Jesus. Now, Mark, what he does in his writing 
in here of chapter 2. He puts bookends in chapter 2, showing us that Jesus has authority to forgive sin, and he also has the authority to define what the law means. And this kind of authority is unlike anything that the Pharisees would understand or even think to be possible that God would come down in the flesh and he would be the one that would be there in front of them to forgive sin and to define what is the law, what is the intent of the law. Jesus, he is this one that has authority over all spiritual things and over all, all physical things. And Mark has made this point, I think, quite clearly in two chapters and again throughout Mark's gospel, he makes this even more firmly into his argument. And so this should be a firm stance that we have as well in understanding who is Jesus and the authority in which Jesus carries. And so when we're approached by people that want to try to persuade you in another way or another realm of thinking about Jesus, we should not forget just two simple chapters in Mark where Mark is explaining, no, Jesus has this authority and only Jesus has this kind of authority. So... If Jesus is the one that gives meaning to what the law says, then we should probably listen to his interpretation. Would, would you not agree with that? That we should probably listen to what he says the law actually means. Instead of just creating our own ideas, our own interpretation of it, but we should listen to his interpretation. His interpretation of the law should supersede anybody else's, and that includes us as individuals. This is what we have in front of us today. Jesus interprets the fourth commandment for us once again. But here, there's more to discover than just the fourth commandment. There's a lot more about who Jesus is and about who God is. So let's go ahead and go into Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at the first two verses, and then we'll kind of review those and walk through this passage. Look at verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Jesus enters the synagogue, and this is not an uncommon thing for him to do. This is very common. Every time Jesus would come into a city, probably one of the first places he would go would be into the synagogue. And what is the synagogue? Well, it was a place in which the truth of God's word was supposed to be taught. It was supposed to be proclaimed That people, when they would go to the synagogue, they had an expectation that they would hear God's word. They would hear the interpretation of God's word. And it seems to be that there's a group that the only reason why they are there is not for that purpose. These people, these more than likely the Pharisees, because we learn about them in verse 6, more than likely these men were not there to listen to the truth of God's word, to understand maybe a deeper understanding of the law, it seems to be that they had one purpose of being there, and that was to find some sort of fault with Jesus. They were not there to learn or to hear an explanation. They had other motives. Let me ask you this question. Could this be said about your motives this morning, that your motivation for being here is not one of expecting to hear God's word or to hear the, uh, a deeper explanation of the law of God, but you have a different motive? Kind of like these Pharisees. What are your intentions for being here this morning? And there's, there's a lot of intentions of which we can have, but again, if we, we gather together and we, we exclude God from our gathering, from Him being the intention of being here, we will miss the whole reason 
why we should be here. Now, if you look at verse 1, there's this man that is mentioned besides Jesus. He is one that we really don't know much about. He is a man with a withered hand. We don't know if he is a plant into this situation by the Pharisees or some other group. We don't know if he is there on his own volition. But what we see and what we will see is that no matter how or who had planned him on being there, that God is going to use this man to drive home a point. And it's a point at which God is, has been using over the past 2,000 years to explain something about himself and about who Jesus is. And so I think we need to pay attention what's happening. This was no accident that this man was in this spot. And I would say it's not an accident for you being here this morning. That maybe you had wrong motivations or wrong intentions for being here or selfish ones. I want to I tell you that it is not an accident that you are here. God has a plan for this man. He has a plan for you. It is not an accident that this man had a withered hand either. It's not an accident that maybe you have sin in your life. Maybe you have things that feel like a withered hand. Maybe physically, maybe spiritually. God had a plan for this man, but what was that plan? Was it just to heal him? Well, we will see that it's far more than just a healing that's going to happen. It's far more than just health, wealth, and prosperity for this man. It has such a deeper reason. This suffering that this man is going through, it is going to show the greatness of God. It's going to show the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I think the same thing is true about maybe our suffering. And what we're going through is that it has a purpose. There's something beyond it. Notice here that there's not a question about Jesus' ability. Notice there in these, these two verses that these men, as they watched Jesus, they did not question, does he have the power to do this? Is he able to do this? No, they didn't question that. They, they had probably seen, they'd probably heard. They'd probably even witnessed themselves. And maybe even these were some of the ones that were back in chapter 2 with the paralyzed individual where they see him get up and walk. This is not something they were questioning. All they wanted to see, though, is if Jesus would do it on the Sabbath. Would he break the law? Now, maybe you know somebody like this, or maybe this is like you. Someone who has heard and even seen how God has worked in somebody's life. You have seen the evidence. It has been truly remarkable to see what has happened. But there's still a a skepticism that is in your thinking. Skeptical towards the things of God. Skeptical towards Jesus Christ. Maybe you or someone you know has heard all the stories of the Bible. They, They understand them. They see them. They perceive them but they remain unconvinced that Jesus is the Messiah. They're just like these people that are watching Jesus, but never having an intention of really believing who he is. This seems to be pretty foolish, I think, because what more proof do you need about who Jesus is? They've seen him heal all kinds of people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him possibly even heal a paralyzed individual. They do not believe, and they do not want to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be because of the hardness of their heart, which we will see in verse 5. Now, the Sabbath day is kind of the, the main thing that they are focused on, the law. That Jesus, you shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath day. 
or at least according to their interpretation of it, that you should not do any kind of quote-unquote work on this day. The Pharisees, they were, they were not monsters of people, don't get me wrong. They were not monsters and thinking that, well, if somebody is dying that you can't do something. They, they believed you could. That if somebody really had a life-threatening illness or disease or situation, that you could intervene, you could do something to help save their life. But we can't go beyond that. We can't do anything more than that. That if a person was suffering from something that was life-threatening, we could step in on the Sabbath, but if it can wait, then we should wait. Even if it's like this man with the withered hand. Their view was, if it absolutely had to be done, then that was acceptable. But if we can delay it, then that's fine. Just not today, not on this day. And this kind of idea, this kind of understanding of God's law influenced the way that they treated other people and they were treating this man in the way that they treated Jesus as well. But what was being missed by this type of thinking was the intent of the Sabbath, the intent of the law itself. Last week we talked about the intention of the Sabbath being given, and Jesus clarifies that in in chapter 2, verse 27, if you want to look there. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning that we are not to be enslaved to the Sabbath day, that it would be a burden to us. No, that in the freedom which is given in the command itself, that it is for our good. That it should be a good thing for us. And so, what is the intent of the Sabbath? Well, last week we talked about three things, and I want to refresh your mind about those three things. And it's, the first is this, it's about rest. We saw there from Exodus where the law was given in Exodus 20 that the Sabbath was intended to help us rest. And not only help us rest, but help those around us find rest as well. Whether it be employees or family members, the Sabbath was given to help us rest. The second thing that we saw from Exodus is that the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of reflection upon God. To reflect upon who He is and what He has done. Reflect upon His creation and that He is the creator of all things, including my watch, my calendar. He is the one that is in control of these things. And that all of our efforts and work or play, all of them are a display of God's grace to us. And so we should reflect upon that as well. The third thing was that we should delight in God. On the Sabbath day, as we learn from Isaiah, that our Sabbath day should be about delighting in God. It shouldn't be a day of just filling it up with activities that distract us from God, but making sure that we are filling our time and filling our schedule full of things that help us focus on Him, that are about Him. This idea of delighting in God is so central to following the law of the Sabbath, or really the intent of the law of the Sabbath, I think this is why Isaiah words it the way he does there. Why, why God says it the way that he does in Isaiah. If we're finding delight in God on the Sabbath, then I would say you're doing it right. Of all the things which maybe you question, I don't know, can I do this or can I not do that? Is it about this or that? I think Isaiah clears it up for us is that it's about delighting. So we learned that the intent of the Sabbath was never about a list of do's and don'ts. And if that's how you think of the Sabbath... I would say you have misunderstood something about this law and really about the intent of it. 
I really think it is about these three things, about rest, reflection, and delighting in God. He is the end goal of the day, not some sort of list that you have or you don't have. He is the focus of the day. He is at the center of this passage that we're in this morning as well. Look at what happens here in the next verses, verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, And he, this is Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, meaning those that are observing, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Let me try to give you a mental picture of what's taking place here. A a synagogue would be a rectangular shaped building. It would have uh, a a main platform area or open area. And there would be a podium kind of like this, but probably a whole lot heavier because it was made out of stone. And they would take the, the scrolls of God's Word and they would roll them out on the scroll in, the, in one area of, probably one end of this rectangular shape. And the Word would be read, it would be taught, and there would be bench seating all the way around. And so there, there would be a place where Jesus would probably be standing, He would be teaching from. It would be a central place that everybody could see, everybody could hear. And then we have this man that Jesus says, come here. In other translations, if you have a different translation, NIV or something else, it probably says something to the effect of stand up in front of everyone or come forward. And so try to envision this room where this man maybe is back in the corner somewhere and Jesus, Jesus maybe even knows the intention of why this man's there. We don't, but he calls for him. He calls for him to be very visible. He calls this man to be a sermon illustration. So who would like to be that for me this morning? And usually nobody. So I've always threatened Lance that I'm going to do this. I'm not today. It's coming though. So this man, he is called to come forward. He's called to step out. So it seems like, oh, Jesus is turning the focus on this man, but he's not. He's not. Look at verse 4. Jesus directs this, he directs a question not to the man. He directs a question to those that are skeptical, to those that are questioning his interpretation of the law. And the question is this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus is raising an issue in front of them, not making this man the focus, really making himself the focus and the law the focus. And he raises the issue of, is it a matter of legality that something's legal, or is it a matter of morality? This is what he is forcing these people to decide between, are these two the same thing? Uh, maybe there's a difference at times. And he's forcing us to examine the same question. So let's think about this. Let's examine this question that Jesus is asking. But let's remove just a phrase for a moment on the Sabbath. Let's pull that out and set that aside for just a moment. We'll come back to that. Let's think about just this in a broad sense of what Jesus is asking. Is it lawful to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? I I think that's such a simple question, again, removing that phrase, that probably any three- or four-year-old it could probably accurately tell you, yeah, good. That's what we should do. Save life, of course. 
I don't think this is a complicated question at all. Of course, it's lawful or right to do good and not do harm. Of course, it is right or lawful to save life and not to kill. Now, in thinking about this intention of all the law of God, does it not come back to this idea of doing what is good? Of doing what is going to save life? Yes, I I think that is the intention of the law. Jesus was asked a question in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and in verses 36 through 40, this is what his response was in uh, the page numbers there on the screen. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you'd like, Matthew 22. Back one book in just a few pages. Starting there in verse 36 through 40, the question was this, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What is Jesus quoting? He is quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. He's quoting the Shema. The Shema is what all the Israelites would know. This is what they were raised on. This is what they were told to to think about, to bind around themselves, to put on their doorposts, to think about this commandment. He is saying that the Shema is a summary of the laws that make up the law of God. This is what Jesus is stating. Or we could say that the Shema is the intent of the law of God. The aim or the determination of any of the laws of God are for that purpose. This is the most important thing to consider when thinking about what is lawful or what is right. When we question what is good or what is lawful, we must filter it through this idea. Is that thing or word or thought, is that loving God with all my heart? Is that loving Him with all my soul, with all my mind? That's the filter that we should be using. This is what the Pharisees should be using, and they're not. So even if something is legal, does that mean that I should morally, based upon the intent of God's law? Or... We can also ask the question, if something is illegal or not permitted, do I have a moral obligation to defy the law because of the intention of God's law? Let me try to simplify this thought process for you. If we take what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and we kind of boil it down to what simply he is saying, he is saying that loving God and loving your neighbor has been the intention of God's law. That has been the intention all along. This is what has been intended by all of the Old Testament. When Jesus says there in verse 40 that on these two commands depend, or if you will, hang all the law and the prophets. Here's another place in which Jesus is referring to all of the Old Testament. He is not in denial of any of it. Whenever you hear people say, well, did Jesus really believe the Old Testament? Yeah, he says right there he does. Uh, He's not in any kind of denial of it. He says all of what is written there is formed around this idea 
of the intent of God's law. Every ounce of the Old Testament is intended to get to our heart. That's what God is going after. Not just our behaviors. Do we want to love God with all that we are doing? Do we want to love our neighbor with all that we are doing? Is God going to be honored by what we are doing or what we are saying? Is our neighbor going to be helped by what we do and what we say? This is what the law of God is about. And this is what the Sabbath is about. Let's reinsert that phrase of the Sabbath into the question. If all the law of God is for the purpose of loving God and loving neighbor, then does it matter what day of the week it is? Does it matter if it is the Sabbath or if it is not? If all of the law, if all the intention of the law is for that purpose, why would it matter? If we do not do good for our neighbor, then we are not loving God and we are missing the intent of the law. In James 4, 17, James writes this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, if you read James 4, you will notice that there's no day of the week attached to what James just said. If you know it's good to do, whatever day it is, you need to do it. It's right. It's good. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath or if it's not. The Sabbath was given so that we would love God and love our neighbor. This was the focus the Sabbath's intention was to help us rest and to help others have rest. It was to help us reflect on God and to help others reflect on God. It was to help us delight in God and to help others delight in God. This is what doing good looks like. And just think for a moment what Jesus is going to do with this man with the withered hand. Whenever he heals this man, is this man not going to do all three of these things? Is he not going to delight in God? Is he not going to reflect upon the power and the, the creative power of God? Is he not going to find rest now because he's whole? And now he can go into the temple. This is what doing good looks like, and this is exactly what Jesus is going to do for this man. This is the bigger question that Jesus wants these people to recognize. This is why he directs the question at them. The day that we should be most focused on loving God and loving neighbor is the Sabbath day. Of all the days in which good should be done for neighbor and for God, that's the day. Now here's some application questions for us. As individuals and also as a church for us to think about, do our policies, our constitution and practices, do they reflect more the intention of the law or is it simply just making a law? Do our traditions reflect loving God and loving neighbor? Does my own personal convictions, do they reflect the intent of God's law? Or have I been acting as a Pharisee with God's law? How, how have I been treating the law of God? Have I been focused on the intent, what's behind it, or just the practice of these things? Look back at verse 4, if you will, to our text there in Mark. 
Notice the last few words of verse 4. It says, but they were silent. They were silent. I think this is so sad. They had no desire to entertain any other idea than what they had already formed in their hearts. They believed that they were right about God's law, even though Jesus is making it quite simple to them in knowing that you've completely missed the why behind all of it. The intent behind all of the law. They were silenced, not because they didn't have anything to say. They had all kinds of things to say about Jesus and to Jesus. But they had already condemned him in their hearts. Look at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Notice this. This emotion of Jesus here, with anger. He looks around with anger at these people. Why? There's a few occasions which we see Jesus angry. And this is one of these places. Anger is not a sinful emotion. It is one that is given by God, but it should be based upon righteousness. Which means, for us, most of the time when we are angry, it's not usually based upon righteousness, but upon selfishness and pride and so most of the time 90 some percent of the time is probably based upon unrighteous things and not upon righteous reason but Jesus here he has the right to be angry because they were not loving God nor were they loving this man with the withered hand all they intended to do was to trap Jesus in some sort of misconduct they were wanting him to fail which is not loving your neighbor, is it? If you have people in your life that all you want to do is see them fail, you're not loving your neighbor. Family, friends, used to be friends. If all you want for those people is failure and that's all you kind of wish upon them, you do not love your neighbor. These people were not loving Jesus, nor were they loving this man. This is another emotion there's another emotion here with Jesus, what he's displaying, what the, what the verse tells us that he has, and his grief. Jesus was angry, but his anger was coming from grief. Being grieved over something means more than just being sad about something. To be grieved over something means that you see the injustice that is being done. And that's why there's sadness. That's why there's anger from Jesus, because there's an injustice being done. What is the injustice? There's three of them, really. The first is towards this man with the withered hand. They have no love at all for him. They do not love this man as their neighbor. The second of all is that they do not love Jesus because all they want to do is entrap him. And because of one and two, the third is true. They do not love God. They have broken the two commands which Jesus says all the law, all the prophets, hangs upon that. These men... They have nothing to say. And Jesus is angry. He is grieved. And it's because of, as it says in verse 5, their hardness of heart. They were filled with pride, thinking that we have it right. Jesus, you have it wrong. Believing that there's nothing Jesus could say that would get him out of this hole in which they have dug for him. They're filled with pride. Listen, God hates pride. 
He hates it. Pride, it hardens the heart against God. It leads us to believe that we are the ones that have injustice done to us when the exact opposite is true because these men are thinking, oh, there's an injustice being done, but they are the ones committing the injustice. Listen to what 1 Peter 5, 5 has to tell us. Peter says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we are filled with pride and our heart is hardened against God, He is opposing us. Why? Because we are rebelling against Him. We must humble ourselves. These Pharisees had no intention of doing that. Look again at verse 5. It says, And said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now notice something. There was no quote-unquote work that was happening here. Notice that Jesus doesn't take any kind of balm out of his satchel, man purse, whatever, whatever you might carry. Maybe calling Judas over. Hey, Judas. He didn't take anything out. Doesn't rub anything on his arm. He doesn't give him any kind of physical therapy. He doesn't spit on the ground, make dirt, you know, this other scenario that happens with Jesus. What does he do? He just tells the man, stretch out your arm. That's all he says. He only speaks, and the man's arm is restored. Now keep that in mind as we read verse 6. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees, they leave the synagogue, the place of truth, the place of God's law, the place where we should learn the intent. They left that place not believing the truth, not believing God's law, not believing the intent. All they wanted to do was believe that Jesus did work on the Sabbath. Now let me ask you this simple question. Which would require more work in this scenario? Jesus saying, stretch out your hand, or holding a planning meeting to work out how to destroy your enemy? Who's doing more work on the Sabbath day? What do we call people like that? Go ahead. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Oh, you're, you're claiming this about Jesus, but you're the ones doing it. Please don't let pride dwell up in your heart right now. Think, oh, I'm not a hypocrite. And everybody in this room is a hypocrite. Especially the guy you're staring at right now. We are all hypocrites, aren't we? We all have the same tendency to, to respond this way and say, oh, well, I would never do that. When the same moment we're basically doing that, same thing. They did not leave this place thinking that Jesus was doing any kind of good for this man or thinking that Jesus was loving his neighbor. No, they left with even more hardness in their hearts toward Jesus. They hated him even more than they did before. So much that Mark tells us they, they were conspiring with the Herodians. Now, who are these people? The Herodians, they were Jewish supporters of Herod the Great and his family, his kingdom, which was appointed by the Romans, which means that the Herodians were basically traitors of the Jewish people. They were seen as rebels against God because they supported a kingdom that was not from God. But what do we see with the Pharisees? We see that they went and they conspired with them. They counseled with him. They planned with them how to destroy Jesus. This is a very revealing moment about these hypocrites, about these Pharisees. It reveals that in their plotting with the rebels of God, they themselves are now shown to be rebels of God. 
What were they wanting to accomplish with their new allegiance that they have formed? Verse 6 tells us how to destroy him. Listen, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, the Messiah, the King, he is the definer of the law, the giver of all things. If you have not surrendered your life to him, then you are a rebel against God. You are either known as a rebel against God or you are a closet rebel of God. One day it will be known. It will be revealed. And all you want as a rebel against God is to do the same exact thing that they are wanting. And that is to destroy Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, Pastor, I'm not a Christian, but I don't want to destroy Jesus. Well, let's just think about the intent of the law. And what it means to follow the law of God and to not be a rebel of God. It means that you are for him, and if you're not for him, then you are against him. And really down deep in the heart of your hearts is that you want to destroy him. Just like these Pharisees, just like these Herodians, just like all these people that we will see again and again that even cry out, Oh, Hosanna! But then short time later, crucify him. I would say to you today, repent of your rebellion. Turn away from your pride. Confess your law following, but your hatred for the intent of the law. Jesus, he went to the cross for rebels. He went to the cross for our pride. He took our sin upon himself. He became our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He then rose from the grave, proving that sin has been defeated, but only in Him. It is not only, sorry, it is only in Him that we can have uh, truly an understanding of what it means to love God, of what it means to love our neighbor. It is only through Jesus that the full intent of the law has been fulfilled you haven't done that. It's only through Christ. And this is why his sacrifice was enough. And it's why you can trust him enough today to be your savior. Are you a rebel against him or do you trust him? Let me conclude with this. If we find ourselves to be more passionate about following the rules than we are about following the intent of the law, then we are acting as rebels against God. The intent of the law is to love God and to love our neighbor. The intent is to do good for God and for our neighbor. Every day and every opportunity we get, we should follow the intent of the law. No matter what day it might be, no matter what time it might be, we, we as the followers of Jesus, we should display this. We should show that we are about loving God and loving neighbor. And that plays out in so many different ways in your life. Each of us will be given different opportunities this week to display that, to show that. The question is, are we going to invite those opportunities? Are we going to kind of turn away and say, well, it's not really the right time or the right day? 
Let us not act like Pharisees this week. We pray for us, and our worship team's going to come. If you want to spend some time praying in your, in your seat, if you want to come and pray with myself or one of our elders, one of our staff, we'd be happy to do that. If you want to talk later, you know, I would encourage you to take that connection card, write something on there that helps us understand that you want to talk with somebody, and put that in the offering in just a moment. We'd be happy to do that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that whenever we hear your word, that it is not confusing. Thank you for Jesus making things so plain, so simple, that we wouldn't just see, oh, here's another rule to follow, but there's, there's something deeper, something bigger and better. And that is the intent behind it. God, forgive us for our acts as Pharisees where we have been hypocritical and, and rebels against you. God, convict us now of those times where we have failed to do good when we, we've had opportunity to do good. And I pray that if anybody's here and they, they have not trusted you as Savior, that today would be that day. That they would trust you as the King. That they would no longer remain in the rebellion, but God, you would change them. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Word thank you that we have a new life in you. I pray these things in Christ's name.